Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 50 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 2nd of August 2021 and this is episode 219. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to barrister and author Harry Potter about his research into the life and military career of prison reformer Alexander Patterson. Harry spoke to me from his home in London. Hi Harry, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Uh, well, I go by the unlikely name of Harry Potter. and uh, In fact, that is the first clue to the Great War because I discovered early on it was actually named after uh, uh, a distant relative who had joined up underage and was killed at the Battle of Jock. Um, thereafter, as a very small child growing up in Glasgow, I made a trench system of my own airfix model, um, tanks and planes so on um, and thereafter I've visited the West Front several times. Most recently in relation to my research in Alexander Paps following path when I went to the, the site of the Battle of Luce and uh, stayed at Talbot House which as your uh, listeners probably know is the only place to stay if you're visiting the West Front because you live the West Front when you're there. Um, so I was born and brought up in Glasgow, went to Emmanuel College Cambridge to read history and then um, also then went on to do an M Phil in Old Testament and Hebrew. Um, and it was while I was uh, uh, training as well to be a priest, which I am, um, I spent uh, two weeks as a Borstal boy, uh, not sent by the courts, but sent by a uh, course director uh, at Hollisey Bay, uh, which of course features later in my interest in Alexander Patterson, because he was the person primarily was responsible for the development of the Borstal system. I then, and there are strange parallels between my life and Alexander Patterson, um, I then spent three years working in Deptford, which is next to Bermondsey, where he worked, and very a very similar uh, London inner city working class community, uh, with all the life and vigour that he describes in a best-selling book he wrote. While I was there, um, quite a few of my congregation ended up in prison, or their relations did, and uh, I so I got prison to quite a lot of prison visits, and was then asked by uh, the chaplain at Wormwood Scrubs if I'd like to help out. Uh, well, I was going to become a fellow of Selwyn College, Cambridge at that point, and I knew I'd have long holiday. So in the summer, winter, sorry, summer, Christmas and Easter, I spent my time um, at Wormwood Scrub. And after my time uh, at Selwyn, I decided um, to enter the prison service myself and work both at Wormwood Scrubs and then Aylesbury, Young Offender, both of which are cat- were Category A establishments holding the most serious uh, offenders. Um, after five years there, I'd always decided to leave the prison service after five years because the staff become institutionalized much as the the inmates or more um and so i became a, a practicing criminal defense barrister which i have been ever since um but i've never lost my interest in history and throughout this period and right up until now i've written a number of books several on uh, legal historical matters one on capital punishment one on the history of the common law uh, and one on the history of prison um as well as two books on scottish history and and some others. Um, I was also asked by the BBC to present a series
series on the history of the law. And subsequently, I also took part in other series, uh, other BBC documentaries, both on television and radio. Um, and I'm currently assisting the National Trust uh, in, on exhibitions they're doing on uh, trial by jury and treason. And I also give seminars and lectures at various universities, both in this country uh, and the United States. Um, in terms of the First World War, I've also written an article in The War Poet, and more pertinently, I suppose, because it relates to Alexander Patterson, I gave a lecture to the Kipling Society on Rudyard Kipling in the First World War, and his son, probably no, was killed at the Battle of Luce, which was the major engagement that Alexander Patterson uh, was involved with during the war. So that's the background, I suppose. Which brings us to um, Alexander Patton himself. So why do you find him so interesting? Uh, well, he's interesting, intriguing, and elusive. Um, it was while I was writing my book on prisons, I got particularly interested in him because um, he played a very major role in the prison system in 1922 and 1940 died, um, when, believe it or not, England was at forefront of penal reform and closing prison number dropping, and uh, people were coming from all over the world um, to see what he was doing. Uh, he's just as significant rates past like John Howard and Elizabeth Fry, but had the added advantage of being a prison commissioner. He could get things done. And people talked about in the most ordinary term um, as the most powerful influence in their lives, prisoners, staff, colleagues. Um, but I, I discovered that there was uh, an article in the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography on him and an, an entry in Was Who. So I knew his hobbies were reading, digging, singing. Um, but I thought I'd get a biography of him and discovered there is an extraordinary um, mission. Um, so I knew the bare bones of background, where he was born, what he did. But there was no detail at all, and I subdiscovered quite a lot of the detailed book, in fact, erroneous. So I decided to rectify this omission because I found him such an intriguing, powerful, um, reforming character um, who had unaccountably um, dropped out of um, public, even though he was very well known in his own time, uh, frequently cited in the House of Commons as an expert, and was considered probably to be, considered internationally, to be one of the leading experts in the world on penal reform. So I decided to see if I could fill in a bit more. I knew he had married and I knew he had a daughter, but he died when she was 19. So I didn't know whether she died young, ever married, had children or so. Uh, but as a result of the marvels of the internet and government websites, you can buy wills and probits and so on. I eventually um, tracked down his grandchildren um, and they put me in touch with their aunt, who was his niece, the only living person I know who actually knew Alexander Patterson. Of course, they were long after died. They provided me with the family archives, including uh, what I thought was the biggest find, uh, was a large black uh, full-scap volume of 213 pages of his... Uh, war diaries and the letters he wrote to his family and a few others uh, during the First World War. Um, so I was then um, I was then confronted with all this material, uh, which actually made him far more than I'd previously thought. I, I knew he had been a dominant figure in penal reform, but I then discovered that he had done a great deal more else, uh, both in his youth, when he was at university, after university, and when he joined up and, and served at, uh, on the Western Front for years. Um, so 
a person I'd found intriguing and uh, elusive, I now discovered less elusive and even more interesting than I'd anticipated. So I very much hope that um, my, the biography I'm writing now will appeal not just to people who are interested in prison matters, but of a far wider readership and interest in particular uh, um, uh, those who have uh, um, studied or have an interest in uh, the First World War, because his contribution is unusual uh, and very interesting. And of course, he writes about it very well. As I said, he was he was already a best-selling um, author in his own right before the war broke out. Which which um, brings us to Patterson's early life. Could you tell us about his sort of childhood, his sort of personal life, and his career up until the outbreak of war? Yes, I can, um, and I can do it pretty quickly. Born in 1884 in Bowdoin in Cheshire, it's a very posh suburb of Manchester. Um, uh, his his family were uh, devout Unitarian, um, a dissenting sect that had a strong con- um, and he remained deeply religious all his life, although in fact he became an Anglican. Finally, he was actually buried a family plot amongst other Unitarians uh, back home. Um, his family were um, also uh, very staunch liberal. There was a picture of William Gladstone in the dining room, and his father was the electoral agent uh, of Winston Churchill, when Winston Churchill, liberal uh, MP in Manchester. His background was, um, it was also very arty. Hans Richter, the conductor, lived next door. John Ireland, the composer, went to his church um, and he was surrounded with uh, um, literati. His, his, his uncle um, Arthur was a, a best-selling writer, explorer and social worker um, working amongst the poor of London which eventually um, Alexander passed and his aunt uh, Mary Allingham uh, was the foremost uh, um, watercolorist uh, at, at the end of the uh, 19th century and one of the one of the gems I was given by the family uh, was a, a, a painting that she had done of the four pattern children. Alexander was the youngest four, um, and these little kids sitting around a table in, in Bowdoin. So he, he was educated there, uh, went to a private school, um, got into University College Oxford, um, uh, where he made mid big impact. Um, everyone, although he was 18, everyone thought he was a, a lot older than that. He looked older, and he certainly had a maturity. There he made lifelong friends that included um, future Prime Minister Clem Attlee, who actually Read this, read the um, the lesson at his uh, memorial service and dedicated Patterson Park at Bermond uh, to his friend after his death. Uh, he was also a great friend of William Temple, the future Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, he became a very prominent debater, debating against people like John Keynes and, and so on, um, and was a major figure in in university life, not just of the college, of the university as a whole. He also, unusually, he got permission um, to take uh, to go himself and take two of his friends uh, every week to Dalloway's Doss House, which was a, a, a shelter for the homeless in poor part of Oxford, uh, where he and his friends um, associated with the down and out um, who were living there. Um, he then met perhaps a person who had the greatest influence in his life, um, which was a, a Dr. Stansfeld. Now, Dr. Stansfeld had set up a mission, a university set, well, it wasn't a university settlement, although it, it was associated with the University of Oxford um, in Bermondsey. The, the the Oxford Medical Mission, and this man came up recruiting for um, young men at uh, at Oxford to assist in what he was doing in Bermondsey, and invited Alexander Patterson to spend a couple of weeks there. Uh, well, in fact, he spent over 20 years there as, as a result, um, and it completely changed his life because uh, he was thinking of a, a career in politics, and uh, the great irony is, if you had looked at Clement Attlee, uh, who, who then was a conservative, and 
Alexander uh, Shrine retiring and you looked at Alexander Pass and said, which one of these is going to prime minister? You'd have said Alexander Pass doubt. He gave that all up. He moved into Bermondsey, moved into a slum tenement in Bermondsey and lived there from 1906 to 1914 and then from 1918 to 1928. Um, and while he was there, he was uh, heavily involved in running a boys club, um, um, summer camp, um, uh, assisting the locals with their legal and social problems and just becoming part of the community. Um, and he seemed to be one of those people who had a, a, a marvellous success of being able to get on with everyone from uh, Winston Churchill, Churchill and Kitchener of Khartoum, whom he also knew, um, right down to uh, uh, people living on the streets or, or people in prison. Um, he became a voluntary probation officer. He became a voluntary teacher in a, in a secondary school. Um, he was asked by Churchill personally, who phoned him up and asked him to be the first director of the uh, Discharge, uh, Association for Discharged Convict. Um, he'd already been interested in prisons because one of the boys he'd been involved with called Jimmy Jones had um, killed his wife. Um, Jimmy Jones is, um, was convicted at, ultimately of manslaughter and sentenced to 10 years penal servitude, which he was doing in Dartmouth. And Alexander Patterson used to cycle from Berman on a regular basis to Dartmouth, sleeping in ditches um, overnight. He also wrote uh, a book called Across Bridge, which was about life on the riverside, south of the river. In other words, about, about Berman. This had an enormous impact. It went in 28 editions. It was quoted in the House of Commons, and he was recognized as, as an authority in working class life, and uh, and in particular, um, how to assist uh, uh, the young. Um, and that really brings us up to 1914, because he's in Bermondsey. Uh, well, he actually, he's visiting someone in Oxford, but he's living in Bermondsey. When the so the war breaks out, um, and Lord Kitchener makes his call to people to join the army, and Patton enlists in the military. Can you tell us um, what his motivation was, and what, what was his choice of unit? Who did he join up with? Uh, well, he actually joined up before the appeal by uh, by Kitchener. Joined up the 13th of August. Um, it, he joined the Bermondsey Battalion, the London Red, uh, which ultimately became 22nd Battalion um, of the 47th Division, one of two divisions uh, cons from the London Red. He joined up in Bermondsey because that's living and that knew everyone. And he joined up there in particular well because read in the newspaper that the only um, battalion that was under strength of that um, was the Bermondsey. And he found that extraordinary because he knew um, the strength of character of the people living in Bermondsey and was um, very surprised by that. He knew that if he joined up, he could bring a lot of people with him. In other words, his club boys, um, while well, some of them were fairly young, some were 18, 19, 20 at the time. Um, and when he joined up, he took with him um, over 50 young men from Bermondsey. He refused a commission um, because, and that was one of his conditions of joining up. He always made conditions the army all succeeded. Um, he said, I'll join up if you make me a private. And so he joined in the Bermondsey Battalion. Um, he, I think he just scraped in at the time because he was pushing 30 uh, when he did. Um, uh, and he was obviously one of the older people to be recruited. Um, and anyway, that's how, that's how he joined up. And that's why he went to Bermondsey. Bermondsey had become his home. I mean, he was born and brought up in Bowdoin. He always had an association with Oxford about his life. But Bermondsey uh, was the place he really thought of as home. And the Bermondsey Battalion was his home battalion. And in many ways, he thought it a continuation of the work he had been doing the young men in, um, I mean, it was almost carry on camping again. And uh, he called uh, his war diary, um, 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 
our record of the happiness of Private Patterson. Um, and happiness was something he seemed to manage to continue um, more or less throughout the war, despite all that he encountered and uh, the horrors that he saw. So tell us about his wartime experience. How did he view the conflict, and what was his sort of view of the view of the of the war at the end? Um, well, as I say, he he joined up um, early on. Um, he never had any animus against the Germans, though he did call them Huns like everybody else, because uh, he had a lot of close friends who were Germans. He'd met uh, Rhodes Scholars, for instance, at Oxford, um, and he and he uh, he these friends had now become enemies, like everybody else. He thought it was a just war, and when your country uh, needs you to join up, you should do so. I mean, his his, his initial he would never act combat territorial. The territorial army was a meant to be home, and he thought they would place garrison that. So he was actually fairly confident they wouldn't see any conflict. But anyway, to, to begin with, he certainly thought it was right going up, and he encouraged um, other people to do so. Um, he trained at St. Albans for over six months, um, where he had his appendix, but he has various ill throughout period. Um, he again refused um, a, a commission uh, because he wanted to remain with his men. Um, uh, he agreed to become a lance corporal, which he did at the end of 1914. Um, his division was the second territorial division to land in France in 19, March 1915. Um, and in April, he became cop, um, where he did all sorts of things apart from running his, uh, his helping run his tune, um, including holding a lot of service. Uh, he had uh, little time for most of the chaplains and thought the, uh, uh, the church was betraying its calling by keeping the chaplains away from the men. Uh, that changed as time went on. Um, and he got, he was frequently asked as well to bury the dead. Uh, doctors and others would come to him and ask him to perform burial service. Um, he then had the misfortune or good fortune to contract jaundice. And I say the misfortune because you don't want jaundice. On the other hand, as a result of that, he missed the Battle of Festubert, um, which is possibly one of the many reasons why he uh, he survived the war. Uh, but it was a result of that battle and the officer casualties that had been occasioned in his division that he finally agreed uh, when he was pestered again by his commanding officer um, uh, that he would... Um, uh, take a commission on condition he stayed with his platoon in, oh, sorry, with his in his division, with his battalion, with his platoon, all of which they exceeded. Um, first of all, he was made a, while it was going through, they made him a sergeant um, and he then became a second lieutenant just before the Battle of Luce, although he didn't know that at the time until the second day of the battle. Um, he then took part in the Battle of Luce. Now, this was his first encounter with combat. Um, the 47th Division actually was the most successful division Division of the Battle of Luce, they attained all their objectives. And again, providentially, um, his um, his um, battalion uh, was held um, to give fire support rather than go over the top. Um, so he survived the battle unscathed. It was in the immediate aftermath of the battle, um, this is in November 19, um, when he was uh, manning a redoubt uh, uh, near Luce, uh, that his unit uh, had were about to be withdrawn. He sent out his sergeant. Um, uh, to get the other men together, heard a loud explosion, screams, ran out, saw the sergeant lying lying on the ground, rushed up, calling his name, uh, and then there were more explosions, and he felt some wet on his back. This was strapped; it entered his back, which he brushed off as as a, as a, as a, the sort of cut you would do if you were you know careless with a cooking knife on on your finger. It was considerably more worse than that, and he was eventually hospitalised, sent back to England to hosp for hospitalisation as well, and finally. Returned um, in 
early 1916 uh, to his unit. Um, there he was asked to take part because he had a very wide uh, involvement in all sorts of areas. He started acting in courts martial and he became a prisoner as a prisoner's friend. And uh, effectively, he became uh, the man to go to if you had a, a, a difficult case. This wasn't a case of a difficult front to courts martial because he had um, a, an astonishing success rate acquittal as well as of mitigation. Um, none of the people he represented was executed, including one boy who had deserted twice. Um, now, he was still on active service um, and, and he was fighting near Vimy. Um, and uh, he had to cross the Zouave Valley six times under heavy shelf, as a result of which he was again hit by shrapnel. Um, and uh, as a result of that, they put him on light duties. He went and maintained a, a light railway line flying the front. And that's why he missed the Battle of Somme, which also probably saved his life as a, as a subaltern. Um, he then, because the doctors kept saying, you're not fit to go back to the front. He kept saying, I want to go back to battle. On one occasion, they put a, a, a notice on, the, on his head of his bed to be returned to England. He took it off and put it on somebody else's bed. So this was a person who wasn't trying to shirk service. He was trying to get back to his men because he felt very guilty that the people he had invited to join up uh, were now being killed and he wasn't there with them. But finally, in February 1917, the doctors put their foot down and declared him unfit for act service. Um, he was then sent to Popperingay to run, effectively run, an off training uh, uh, with the added advantage that he then became, he then got in contact with another of his old friends, Tubby Clayton, uh, who had set up Talbot House. And Alexander Passon became a leading um, exponent of Talbot House. He held lectures there, a prayer meeting, um, gave speeches, took part in debates, so on. And after the war, he became the, the first chairman of the executive committee of Talk 8. So talk, Talbot House and Talk 8 um, uh, were a very important thing for him to discover, to discover during the war. It was, Tubby Clayton had been involved in Bermondsey with Dr. Stansfield. Tubby Clayton said, this is Bermondsey in, on, in, on the Western Front, very much home for home for him. He was then asked to work for Corps Intelligence for a while. Uh, he then was moved to another Corps school, which he didn't much like. And then he got dream job. He was made divisional sports and recreation officer, um, and he was promoted to uh, be a full lieutenant at that time. He, he maverick as he was, um, and he was quite outspoken about his views. Um, he was highly critical of a lot of the officers he encountered, highly critical a lot, lot of the trap, um, highly critical of the inefficiency of the arm. Uh, but he never he never went back and thinking that it was a, 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 a war that had to be fought. He just didn't think we were fighting it very well. And he had a completely different idea of this from that of the regular, which was rather shocking to some of us, even though they liked and admired him, because he talked about self. He talked about uh, leading from the front, but not, not ordering people around, encouraging them to take. Um, and he gave a lot of lectures on, on this in the army, um, which, despite the fact he thought it shot some people off, and they kept coming back. One was General Gorin, who was the um, major general in charge of his division. Uh, and he had such a a view of him. Um, they often lunch. Um, uh, he asked him to uh, research the history of the 47th Division during the First World War and got him access to the war diaries back in London. And Alexander Patterson 
Edison wrote a, a, a test chapter, um, which is now incorporated in Alan Maud's history of the 47th Division, um, about the Battle of Bourlon Wood. Um, he also contributed quite a lot else to it, because you can see by the style of the writing, this is Alexander Pass, because he's a very distinct way of writing. Um, so he was doing all those things and doing court martial. Um, and he finally left the army with the rank of captain and uh, was awarded uh, a military cross. Um, and, and throughout the war, his constant companion had been a young man called Tom Anglis, one of the Bermondsey boys he had brought into the into the uh, division with him. And he remained his batman and they remained, he remained his friend right to the end of his life. Um, and in fact, he lived with Tom Anglis's um, family from uh, 1922 to 1928 when he got married. So that, that's the overview of what happened to him in the war. It was quite a varied experience. He describes in quite a lot of detail the thoughts he's having. And he does think that after the war, the whole world is going to have to train. Uh, I mean, things like the League of Nations, he would uh, thoroughly, thoroughly sort, uh, as well as um, that other great, uh, as William Temple said, two, two great things arose for the First World War. The first was the League of Nations, and the second was uh, uh, Talk H. Well, Talk H still survives, though the League of Nations does not. Um, so he, he then, he, he, was, he was determined to um, use the left, rest, rest of his life as he had used the earlier part of life in trying to ameliorate, ameliorate condition and bring people and bring people together, transforming society. Because he was very much not, you know, a class conflict person, class cooperation. We had um, based on Bermondsey, how um, people from all walks of life, all backgrounds, all educational um, achievements, privileged or underprivileged, um, they have more in common than they have apart. They have a common humanity, and uh, um, he that was built up in the trenches uh, where he was considered to be an exemplary officer the morale of his men was extremely high if he, he he if he called for volunteers he was always the first of all um he went out on onto uh, no man's land to, to uh, as many others did uh, went out onto no man's land on several occasions to bury the dead um and uh, he he would not leave dead or or injured or, or injured men behind um, i think he survived the war not not uh, mainly because of the injuries he received and the fact that, and, and the jaundice he had, uh, which meant that when so so many of the big con, uh, he just wasn't there. Um, although he was always pretty near the front line, certainly uh, um, when um, in in late uh, 1917 and early 1918, um, he was up feeding the troops, effectively running soup kitchen, so right at the front line. So he was coming under fire, but fortunately he, he, he was not hit again. So he seems to have left the army um i mean he, he he was physically he was in pain for the rest of his life as a result of wounds because they never managed to extract um all the shrap in his in his back uh, but he he left the army um feeling that a he had done the right thing and it was right for him to have brought all these young men into the army with him even though the majority of them did not re return home but he never met recriminations from their uh, um their parents or relations whether he blamed himself in any way is not known because he doesn't express anything. Uh, but he, he did see the war as a great binding experience uh, and that the future of the country could be could be better gauged by um, you know far greater cooperation, understanding, friendship between members of different classes, different social groups, different areas uh, than, had, than had previously been the case. Um, and that was the sort of thing he went on to do um, after the war. So tell me about what he did post-war and what's the uh, impact of his experience of service um, in the military and during the war? Um, 
when he um, was demobilized, he was appointed to the new Ministry of Labor, uh, which had been set up, for, and he was to the juvenile department that, uh, getting, in other words, um, work for uh, for youngsters, either discharged servicemen or others. Um, and as I said before, he got heavily involved in Talk H all that time and returned to Bermondsey and carried on his work there. But then in February 1922, he was uh, appointed uh, one of the three of Her Majesty's commissioners for prisons. Now, these this was the group that ran the prison service, not like the present prison department. They were largely autonomous. They were actually very powerful uh, and they were well respected. Um, and he was brought in primarily because of his understanding of young people, because one of the great developments within the prison service time was the Borstals had been set up in 1902 and was, uh, but in prisons or in converted prisons, um, but to try and give um, a reformative um, environment uh, where youngsters could be educated, trained, um, encouraged, and helped not to reoffend. Um, so he was brought in to um, continue the work in Boston. He actually totally transformed. He was the first person who, who brought in open prisons, open Borstals. He wanted um, anything to do with the punishment of the young to be as far away from prison as possible. In fact, he wanted the name prison abolished. Um, that was a, a fancy too far. Um, but in doing this, he knew he needed help. And one of Alexander Patterson's great gifts was to enthuse other people with his own vision. Now, several of the people he had served with in the First World War, including Charles Pennell, who had been his regiment sergeant major, he encouraged to join the prisons. In fact, he became governor of the Dartmoor prison. He used the resources of Toc H. Uh, because, of, uh, as, as you'll know, uh, Tokate consisted largely of young men, many of whom had served the West Front, who wanted to uh, do a lot of good in the community. And he harnessed, so he encouraged um, they, they They went into um, prisons and borstals, gave lectures, uh, kids on camps, uh, played the role of prison visitors, another thing he introduced into the prisons. So it was the reforming zeal he had that he managed to pass on to these others and really guide Galvanize this enormous amount of support, not only within within that, but in within the wider community, because it was a time when you could explain to the public why you were being soft on criminals, and they lapped it up. And he got um, a, a great deal of support, um, both from uh, the conservative, uh, the liberals, um, and uh, and the Labour Party. Um, as a result of all this, I mean, he wasn't just dealing with you as well, um, and he over the over the years came the one of the acknowledged. Um, world experts on penal matters. He was consulted by prison administrators from all over the world. Many of his views were adopted by others. Um, he was asked to attribute his expertise, parliament committees, cap punish young offenders. And he wrote an awful lot of reports on prison because he visited a lot and, and his reports are not um, uh, civil um, civil jargon, uh, civil jargon, written in, in civil servant jargon. Uh, they are really good reads. They're riveting reads uh, because he wrote very well, but they're full of of fact and uh, um, insight and recommendations because um, he toured relentlessly um, prisons in Germany, Belgium, Holland, Italy, Burma, the United States of America, the Caribbean, British Guyana, French Guyana, uh, where in fact um, it was a result of his report on French Guyana and devil's 
Devil's Island, which he sent to the French government. The French government closed Devil's Island. Um, and he also visited the East African colony. This was all before the war, the Second War. He was also involved in the International Penal and Pen Penitentiary Congress. And when they had a meeting in Berlin, this was one of my most interesting discoveries. Um, the Berlin Congress had been set in 1930 when the previous one had been in Prague. Uh, by 1935, of course, the Nazis had taken over and they did their best to uh, completely hijack the entire conference by swamping it with German delegates. And, and Alexander Patch, uh, in connivance with the American dele delegates, devised a scheme to thwart what they were doing. So it got him, and when I say they, I'm talking about Goebbels and Hans Frank and people like that, all who, whom addressed Congress, and he took them on. During the Second World War, um, he was also uh, um, deeply involved in, uh, involved in probably his most remarkable, he was sent to Camera, Canada, um, to uh, sort out the Jewish sheep from the Nazi goat uh, amongst the enemy aliens whom we had deported to Canada. Uh, and there he wrote one of his finest reports, which was suffused with moral indignation and, uh, and compassion, and had a huge effect. It led to the, re the, the release and repatriation of an awful lot of German Jews who wanted to fight for Britain, or their resettlement in Canada and the United States. Um, he also was sent on a... This is in the Second World War, just for interested in penal reform, even in the Second World War, he was sent to uh, uh, the West African um, uh, prisons to advise on how they should uh, be run in malaria-ridden West Africa. He caught malaria on several occasions, was hospitalized several times. It undoubtedly led to his early demise. He was then asked to go to Malta, uh, which had just survived um, almost obliteration by uh, German and Italian planes, to advise in prisons and what to do with imprisoned British military personnel. Um, as I say, that all took its toll, uh, in addition to the war wounds that he'd been harboring since uh, 1916. Um, and so he, against the desire of all his colleagues, um, he res resigned uh, at the end of 1946, but agreed to stay on as a sultan. He was then knight um, Clement Attlee's recommendation, suffered strokes, went downhill. Um, it was an interesting little coda to this. The Tom Anglis, who had been his great friend in the First World War, lived nearby him in Chelsea and Patterson's, Alexander Patterson having had these strokes sometimes would wander off into streets at night and she would contact Tom. Tom would search streets, find his old friend and bring him back home safe. Um, but he then died in November 1947 um, leaving um, his widow and uh, a 19 year old daughter. So his career was, he'd, he'd effectively done most of the work he needed. He had managed to engage so many people from his past um, and from his wartime experience in, in in what he was doing, but it was it was sandwiched between two world wars. First World War led to this great desire to change things in way. The trouble is, the Second World War destroyed a lot of what he'd been hoping to achieve because a lot of his staff were killed. They were well, either called up and never returned, or were killed. Um, and so, and, and when he came back, he tried to restore things as much as he could, but his time was limited, and because he was expected to do so many other things. Um, um, and he he failed 
I suppose, to keep up the momentum. It lasted quite a long time after his death because an awful lot of people had joined the prison service either from his army days or from young men from public schools he, because he went around talking and encouraging people to join up um, at the universe. Um, they obviously continued with um, his uh, missionary zeal. Um, but as we know, um, as the years passed, cynicism crept in. Uh, the whole idea of re rehabilitation came under um, um, reproach. Um, and his approach was sidelined. It still persists to a certain extent because lip service is made to rehabilitation within uh, the prison service. And one of the things on the prison service statement of mission, it's their aim to, to, to enable people to lead good and useful lives. Now, that's a phrase that may well have been coined by Alexander Patterson. So his, 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 he is still known in narrow prison circles. Uh, but, but as a result, I suppose, of the whole change in the tenor of culture, and he came... I suppose he had the misfortune to come from a Christian, privileged, patriotic um, background um, with a strong sense of duty. And a uh, strong sense of duty perhaps is, uh, is less in vogue than it was in his day, perhaps uh, uh, unfortunately so. But why, why he completely dropped out of, uh, of, of, the, of the public perception, I don't know. Those are just I'm surmising about. But his, but his influence lives on, and his example is certainly um, one uh, well worth considering because it indicates that a person with vision, determination, and sense of duty, utter dedication, um, what they can achieve uh, from small beginnings, because of course within prison, prisons had always been underfunded, always been understaffed, always been a Cinderella of the of the social service. Um, but he managed to do more with the um, the straw he, he was given to make brick than just about anybody else ever managed. Um, and it is an indication of how much can be. And, and his whole life's work um, seems to be of a piece. You know, the, the influences of him in his youth from the Unitarians, from his liberal background, from what he encountered at, at Oxford and fell under the philosophical, um, into, into the philosophical um, umbra there uh, of people like um, T. Uh, Green, the philosopher, um, the people he met there, because he, he maintained French throughout life. I mean, Clement Attlee um, and others from his university days remained uh, close friends uh, uh, throughout his life. Um, so you get, you get all that, that then the Bermondsey experience, which was sort of solidified by four years of being with the people he'd been working in, in Bermondsey, seeing them live, seeing them die, um, and, and then his work in the prison service uh, uh, to try and uh, rehabilitate and encourage the wider public to see prisoners as not separate and different, but uh, very much like all of us. Um, and, you know, there but for the grace of God go I, so on. So his life is very much of a, of a, of a part. His first World War experience is a very important, uh, but it, it has to be seen in the context of what went before and what went after. And my final question is, where can people learn more about Sir Alexander? Well, they can't learn very much more than looking in the Oxford Dictionary of National biography and who was who at present. Uh, they will have to wait for the publication of my biography of him, um, which I've given a provisional title of uh, A Good and Useful Life, Alexander Patterson in Peace, War and Prison, um, which should be published later this year by Boydell and Brewer. Um, um, one, of the, one of the advantages of the lockdown is I managed to complete
complete it um, a year ahead of schedule. So it's with the publishers now. It's going out for peer review. I've got to revise it in due course, but it should be out sometime this year. They will find references to Alexander in, in, in other people's books, for instance, uh, books on um, um, penal prison history in the 20th century uh, will have sections on him. But they, in, in, they entirely deal with his prison. There is, there is, there is the only references you will find in other, you will find some references in other people's. You have to look, you have to look carefully to what happened in the war, what happened in Bermondsey and so on. Various people like Bartley Barron, again, who was involved in Talk H, was at University College with him, was involved with him in Bermondsey. Um, he wrote um, a biography of the of the doc where he talks quite a lot about Alexander Pash, both in Bermondsey and the First World War. But as I said, um, I've certainly discovered that quite a lot in, at present in the public domain is inaccurate. For instance, it is repeatedly said that he was twice nominated for a Victoria Cross. One writer even says he he was awarded for it. There is no evidence for this whatsoever. He he was awarded in um, military. He was mentioned in dispatches, but I have found no evidence at all of any recommendation of Victoria Cross, although he was undoubtedly uh, a very brave person and very possibly uh, deserved. Um, so at present, Fred, um, if you're interested in Alexander Patton, um, uh, you'll really have to wait for my biography. I do mention him a little bit on a, on a BBC History um, podcast that I did um, uh, late last year um, uh, when I was uh, interviewed about uh, my forthcoming book on prison, uh, when I talk quite a lot about him there. But again, that's a prison context, a context and, that was, and that was before I'd done quite a lot. I'm also hoping, and I'm present, trans, I have transcribed his entire word diary and the letter and I'm now putting them uh, in chronological order the letters in, go in with the the war diary um, and I'm hoping to um, have that published Harry thank you very much for your time my pleasure you have been listening to the mentioned in dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me Tom Thorpe thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition the theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Buthworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time...